Uh, This morning we will be in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. If you'd like to go ahead and turn in your Bibles there to to those uh, chapters, we'll read those together here uh, in just in just a moment. A couple of things to say as we uh, get started here from the from the get go. Number one, let me be your uh, reminder today of the importance of sunscreen. Uh, those of you that can see me, I've, you clearly can tell I was in the sun yesterday and forgot to wear sunscreen. So if you look up and I look like particularly mad at a certain point in the sermon today, I promise you I'm not, okay? It's just the, it's just the sun. Uh, also, we've got several uh, guests here today. Really, really grateful that you've chosen to be here with us today. I'm, I'm kind of honored. I have one of my former professors, Dr. Rodney Cloud, here on about the third row. And uh, he is, is here with his wife and enjoying some time with family. And he's joined us here in worship as well. So that's a little, always, always a little intimidating dating. We have a former professor uh, in the crowd as well. But, uh, but as Joe said this morning too, we had uh, a wonderful time celebrating our, um, uh, our families this morning and having our, our children here on the stage, the, the way that the Lord has blessed our, our families with those, those youngest members of this family. We just wanted to, uh, to be good stewards of that blessing this morning and pray for them. And we had a reception Uh, during the class hour as well and so I just I registered that with you as well so that you'll be praying about um, about those those precious little ones it was the the first day of school for Dan Lear's three children the Lear family lives in Seattle Washington and Dan is an attorney in a scramble to get his boys to class on time the Seattle-based lawyer wound up parking in a space he probably should have avoided these are his words he said well there was a fire hydrant right there but but the curb wasn't painted. That sounds kind of like a, a lawyer trying to work his way out of it, right? He said that uh, the curb wasn't painted and the fire hydrant was kind of painted a funny color. And so I thought, and maybe it was wishful thinking, but I thought it would be okay to park there. Well, sure enough, he returned to his car to find a parking ticket attached to the windshield. He didn't want to deal with it immediately. And so Dan went home. He, he stuck the parking ticket on the refrigerator door for a few days And that's when uh, a friend of his told him about uh, a website called Do Not Pay that hails itself as a free online, and get this, robot lawyer, all right? So if you're like me, you may not know what a a robot lawyer is. I had to do a little bit of research here. A robot lawyer is a computer program that uses artificial intelligence to ask the same questions as a flesh-and-blood lawyer about certain legal issues, and in this case... In this case, it has to do with parking tickets. So you can see this is just a screen grab of the, uh, of the, the website there. But, you know, you log in, you go to this website, and you fill in the, the information over in the corner. Okay, I, I got an unfair parking ticket. Can you appeal for me? And you log in, you give them the details, and, and they've claimed, according to, to, the, to the website, they claim about a 60% success rate in helping you appeal parking tickets. And in the cities of London and Seattle and New York over the last few years, they have, they have appealed and won some 200,000 cases. Can you believe that? And so Mr. Lear logged on here. He, he answered the appropriate questions. And within a few minutes, he had a 500-word letter of appeal to send to the city. You want to know the verdict? The verdict is this, uh, his citation was eventually dismissed. And Mr. Lear joined the 200,000 other people who we would say, okay, another successful case defended by the robot lawyer, all right? Uh, robot lawyers might be able to handle problems like, like this. A robot lawyer might be able to help you get out of a parking ticket, okay? I'll, I'll grant you that. But, but I doubt very seriously that any of us would trust the legal counsel of a machine when it comes to more serious matters, right? Right? 
I mean, when you get in serious trouble, you're in serious trouble with the law, you want the best person possible defending you, don't you? You want the best legal counsel, you want the best representation, I want the most articulate advocate possible defending my cause. And I bring all that up to you today because as we look now in the book of John, we've been studying John together now for several weeks, and we get to John 14 and also we'll jump over to John 16 and hear what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit He's going to use language that's going to call to mind for us that we have the best advocate and the best counselor that we could possibly have in the Holy Spirit. John has more to say about the Holy Spirit than any other gospel writer. John in his gospel records more about the Holy Spirit than Matthew, Mark, Luke, And what's interesting is that as we read here, as we read what John records, the words of Jesus, that that John is going to use legal language to describe the Holy Spirit. Uh, He uses a Greek word, and many of us have heard this word before, maybe in Bible classes, but maybe some of us, maybe not, but but the word there is is paraclete, paraclete. Uh, It was used in a lot of the Greek language in antiquity to describe a legal advisor, Okay, so there's one. This word that, that is recorded in the scriptures is, is this ancient word that calls to mind a, a legal advisor. Uh, the word describes one who comes close alongside another person. Okay, so it's a word that calls to mind this idea of, of proximity. So you can imagine, again, if you're in trouble, if you, you need someone, it's particular, someone who has some, some ability in the law, some understanding of the law, what do you want? Well, you want that person to be able to come near so that they know your cause, they know you, they know the details, they know the, uh, the facts of the case, so to speak, and they are able to speak out of that because they have proximity to you, all right? So the paraclete is one who comes alongside to provide this kind of counsel. And in our English Bibles today, as we get to John 14 and John 16 in just a minute, the, this word that's in John is translated one of two different ways in most of our English uh, Bibles. The first is this, and in some of the language that we'll read today, you might see that Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, and he might call him our advocate. Advocate. Okay, well, advocate is, has kind of a legal connotation, okay? An advocate is one who, who speaks on your behalf, one who speaks up for you. An advocate is one who will plead your case, right? So if, again, when you're in trouble, in particular, you're in trouble with the law, you want a good advocate, right? You want someone who is able to clearly and compellingly state the facts, someone who's able to speak in your defense. And so when we we pause right here and and, and go ahead and say in advance, as we think about what we're going to hear from Jesus today, it should be a tremendous comfort for us to hear Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit as our advocate. You know, the fact that the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to speak up for us, the one who will plead our case. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel better about things already, (laughs) knowing that the Holy Spirit is operating according to Jesus, according to the Gospel of John, the Holy Spirit is going to operate in this capacity. So we have the Holy Spirit as an advocate. And then also this, in some of our our translations, we'll see, maybe not advocate, but we'll see that word counselor. It's another valid translation. Well, what is a counselor? Well, counselor is one who gives wise counsel. It's one who advises. You know, we go to a, a counselor because we believe that 
that, again, in this particular legal case, legal counsel, they're going to be able to direct you in the, in the right pl- in, in, into the right direction, right? We believe that uh, counselors, maybe at, 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 if we're dealing with some sort of emotional issue, we go and we talk to a counselor because we believe that their advice, their wisdom, will be able to lighten the load for us emotionally. And so there's also this connotation of comfort that comes here. Sometimes when we read in certain translations, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit as our comforter. Well, it's the same idea. The comfort that we find in the Holy Spirit is directly related to the wise counsel that he imparts. We can take comfort in knowing that if we're listening to God's Spirit, we're getting wise counsel. Does that make sense? So those are the two ways that, uh, that many of our, our translations uh, translate this word paraclete that is used to describe the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, now let's, let's take a few minutes, let's read through some of what Jesus has to say in John 14 and John 16. We're not able to cover it all because it's a lot, but we're, we're trying to focus here on what Jesus says in these last few hours, what he has to say about the Holy Spirit. So we're going to begin now in John 14. We're going to start in verse 15. We'll have another reading in 14, and then we'll go to John 16. You'll see these verses on the screen. This is the word of God. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Jumping down to verse 25 now. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace, Jesus says, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And now finally over in John chapter 16 starting in verse 6. Because I have said these things you are filled with grief but I tell you the truth it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away the counselor will not come to you but if I go I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer, and in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. And finally, He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, and he refers to the Holy Spirit as another counselor. Did you catch that? He says, I'm going to send you another counselor. And so we're we're operating here with this understanding that if the Holy Spirit is another counselor, then it stands to reason that Jesus himself is the first counselor. Jesus is going to depart, and he will send the Holy Spirit, but the counsel will remain the same. So uh, we have this consistency between uh, God the Son and God the Spirit. 
John, in his epistle, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he actually uses that same word, paraclete, to describe Jesus. He says that Jesus is the paraclete. He is the one advocating. He is the one defending our cause before the Father. So, back to John's gospel, we have Jesus who's saying he's going to leave, but he will leave another counsel. He will send in his stead, in his absence, another counselor, another advocate, referring to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus uh, refers to the Holy Spirit there as the spirit of truth. And that leads us to kind of the first, the first application here, the first thing I really want us to sort of take away. I want us to, to, to really focus on a couple of, of things that we can see here as, um, as, as benefits, as blessings, as, as things brought to us because of the presence of God's Spirit. And the first has to do with that idea of, of obedience. The Holy Spirit counsels us into obedience counsels us toward greater obedience. You know, so Jesus says, as we read there in, in John 14, verse 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. And then he gets into all of this about the Holy Spirit. So why does Jesus do that? Well, sometimes in the way we kind of grab a verse here and grab a verse there, we might think, well, okay, Jesus is talking about obedience. And he's telling the, the, the guys, okay, obedience is really important. And then he kind of wanders off the reservation and gets over here and talking, oh yeah, and by the way, there's going to be a Holy Spirit and you're going to get him. He's going to do great things. And no, Jesus, for, for Jesus, he's having a conversation, and those two pieces go together in a way that, that are meaningful. So Jesus is saying here that the, the counselor, the advocate, is going to help guide and lead us. If we will listen to the Spirit's counsel, then we will be guided toward obedience. The Spirit is always interested in leading God's people into greater obedience. Being obedient to the word of God. Being obedient to the commands of Christ. Okay, so this is, again, where we have a little bit of a disconnect culturally. This is the disadvantage we have in coming to God's word here because we tend to think of Christianity as sort of a a default setting. We think, you know, Christianity is all about love. It's about loving God. It's about loving others. And to that, I would say, amen, right? There's a lot in here. There's a lot that has to do with love. And if you're going to choose a a default setting according to the word of God, I think it needs to be a loving sort of disposition. I will agree with that all day long. But the trick there is then trying to define love. And a lot of times we define love as just kind of this interior sort of like ooey gooey kind of feeling, right? And and, and the the fallout of that for Christianity, for for following Jesus becomes then, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross to save me of of my my, my sins so that then I would kind of have ooey-gooey sort of feelings toward everything and everybody and and that I would be be basically a nice, pious person. And and what Jesus says is that I I think he's, he's less interested in us being like nice people and he's more interested in us being obedient Because Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And those two things go hand in hand. And the gift of the Spirit is worked in there. For Jesus, his his teaching on the Spirit here is informed by his desire for us to love him through obedience. Did you know that in the New Testament, there are over 1,000 commands? Over 1,000 commands. We start adding them up, all those imperatives, all those things. You know, do this, don't do this. These direct commands to us as followers of Jesus. When we say Jesus is Lord, that's what we're signing up for, right? So the, the, the ooey-gooey interior feeling, that, we could deal with that later. But here's what, what discipleship is, is saying, okay, because you have died for me, I give my life to you. And so if you say, don't do this, then I won't do that. Or if you say that the best way to live is to live this way, then I will do that. 
but it's trying to live in obedience to those commands that the Lord gave us. That's what discipleship is all about. And that's why Jesus, in his last few moments with these disciples, before the guards were going to come to take him away, that's why Jesus chose that moment to talk about obedience. This is not works-based righteousness. Don't misunderstand me. We still need the grace of God to help here, but, but there is something to be said for obedience to Christ. And I think, if I'm just being critical of kind of the way the gospel is presented in a culture like ours today, we don't talk enough about the importance and the place at the table for obedience because Jesus links obedience and love. And he says the Spirit is the Spirit of truth seeking to guide us into greater obedience. So obedience, we're going to define it this way. It is living truthfully in light of the commands of Jesus. If the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth, and I'm listening to the Spirit of truth, he is going to lead me out of disobedience and lead me into greater obedience. That's about as simple as I can put it, right? And so for, the, for us as followers of Jesus today, we think about the, the Holy Spirit and how he works and how he operates in our lives. And I'll tell you, folks, there are a lot of off-ramps on that highway. You know it, right? There are a lot of places where people want to take the conversation on the Holy Spirit. Hey, we're going to go over here, and we're going to go over here. And, uh, you're, if, if you're interested in one of those off-ramps, you're going to be really disappointed in this sermon, okay? Because what I want to point out here is that for Jesus, when he brings up the Spirit to these followers, it is within the context of trying to encourage greater obedience. He's saying, God's not going to leave you empty-handed, guys. This, the gift of the Spirit is there to, to give you that counsel to guide you into greater levels of obedience. But the choice is ever and always yours and mine, okay? So that's the first thing we want to we talk about with regard to the, to the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is always counseling us into obedience, into greater obedience, all right? Also, though, Jesus uh, promises that, that the Spirit will live in and within those followers. He says again, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now that's an important promise. That's an important promise that Jesus makes because he's already told those disciples that he'll be leaving. And that has caused them major, major distress. This has disturbed the disciples greatly. We can picture them sort of sitting around. Jesus is always talking about, okay, I'm about to go, I'm about to go. I have to go to Jerusalem. Uh, they're they're going to, you know, the chief priests and the, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they're, they're going to deliver me over to death, you know, all this kind of stuff. And they, they think that he's talking in parable. They don't quite understand. And then Jesus says, no, this is really going to happen. And, and, and they continue to struggle with this. We can picture the disciples kind of asking themselves, okay, wh- what are we going to do? Is, is he serious? He's really going to be gone? How are we going to, who are we going to follow? what do we do? And then Jesus says, time out, guys. I want you to know this. Yes, I have to go, but it is good for you that I have to go. How is that possible? If there's somebody you love in your life and they tell you they have to go, it's hard to hear that as good, right? But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's good that I leave because if I don't leave, I can't send the counselor. And he says, I'm not going to leave you. Did you catch the the way he said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you as orphans. What would drive Jesus to say that? Right? I mean, that is, that is such a, a descriptive thing to say. I will not leave you as orphans. Why does Jesus say this? Well, I think he says this because, because fear of abandonment, fear of abandonment is a universal fear. And the Holy Spirit For Jesus talking to these believers, and I think speaking to us as well, the Holy Spirit is God's way of addressing this fear 
of abandonment. Jesus knows that these guys are, are struggling. They're really struggling with his imminent departure. And if you know how the rest of the story goes, you see that borne out over and over. They come to take Jesus away, and what does Simon Peter do? Well, he denies that he even knows him. John's the only one who will even show up at the crucifixion. And by the time Sunday rolls around, where do you find the disciples? They're in the upper room with the door locked, quaking in fear. You see, the satanic forces that that put Jesus on that cross, they accomplished exactly what they wanted in that moment. I mean, there there was a party going on on the streets of hell at that point because I think Satan and his forces thought they had won. They had crippled the movement with fear because that's the way Satan works. He wants to cripple you and your spiritual growth through fear. He'll use any other tool that he can, but he crippled the the movement there for just a few moments because of fear. Jesus was gone and nobody knew what to do. And I bet, I'm willing to bet that in the low points of your life, the times when you replay it back and you, you look at some of, some of the worst, point, the, the, the chapters you wouldn't want to revisit, okay? I'm willing to bet that for you and for me, uh, those, those experiences felt similar. It's not always apples and apples and things are different, but in, in those moments, you felt all alone. You lost your job, and you wondered if God was just ignoring your prayer for a new job. You had a sick child, and you began to, to, to feel like you were just going through that all alone. And in those moments of, of grief and, and anguish or doubt or whatever it is that, that, that you're, you're dealing with, that fear of, of abandonment sort of swells up inside... We know that feeling. And if you feel that feeling, if you know that feeling, guess what? Jesus knows that feeling. This is the only way to understand what he says on the cross when he quotes a lament psalm to describe the experience of hanging there for my sin and yours. You know, God's word is clear about so much. But one of the things cover to cover that God is adamant about and he wants us to know is this, that Satan does his best work in isolation. You know that it's true. I know that it's true. In the Garden of Eden, from the Garden of Eden until the present, Satan has always done his best work in isolation. You know, it's funny that he chooses to come and, and attack Eve, not when she's walking with Adam, not when she's walking with the Lord, right? But when she's alone. And in your life and in my life, how many times does Satan do that? He can get you isolated. He can get you alone. He gets you away from God's word. He gets you away from, you know, godly people in your life. He gets you kind of away from all the right kinds of influences. He gets you alone, maybe when nobody else is around, and that's when the attack comes the hardest. It's because Satan does his best work in isolation. That's what he does. He'll try to get you alone, or if he can't get you alone, he'll take the next best thing. He'll get you to think that you're alone. He'll get you to think that the problem you're dealing with is unlike anybody else's right and so he'll tell you boy man you better cover that stuff up if people know the real you people know what you've done do you know what they'll think boy if i were you i would tuck that away and not deal with it and just ignore it sweep it under the rug and don't dare say a word about it to anybody else he'll get you to think that you're all alone he'll get you to think that you're the only one dealing with that problem because he does his best work in isolation. And the Bible says that clearly and consistently from cover to cover. He's a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. And he's a sniper. He'll take you out one by one. He'll take us out one by one. 
pull you over here, pull you over there. That's one thing the Bible's clear about. And if that's where we ended, it'd be pretty depressing. <laughs> but thankfully, we're people of good news, right? And the, and the Bible's a, a word of good news. And any message about Jesus is a gospel message because God also says this. Yeah, he's clear that Satan does his best work in isolation. But God is equally clear about this, folks, that God's people are never alone. God's people are never alone. That's again where the gift of the Holy Spirit comes in because he wants us to know you're not alone. I've given you this gift. I've given you the gift of, of the presence of the Spirit, and so you never have to feel like you're alone. You know, in both Testaments, old and new, this promise from God is there. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. It's in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. That tells me that at every stage, God wanted his people to know they weren't alone. God wanted his people to know he was not going to turn his back on them, that they were not forsaken, and that they were not abandoned. Now, it may feel like it sometimes, and even Jesus knows that truth, but it doesn't change how he feels when he's hanging on the cross. But there's nothing wrong with him articulating that back to the Father because that's faithful. Hey, this is what I'm feeling. And sometimes once I deal with that, then I can go back to the truth of God's word and say, okay, I may feel this, but I know that the promises of God are as good as gold. And he says, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. You know what that word never means? Tell me if I'm wrong, Dr. Cloud, right? In Hebrew, that word, it means never. That's what that means, Okay. And in Greek, you know, here's, you really need, you might want to write this one down too. In Greek, the word never, it means never, all right? I'm not trying to be cute. I'm just trying to prove the point. Like, it means never. And that's the word from God. It means like, as in not ever. I will not ever leave you or forsake you. So if you're here and you're feeling Satan kind of weigh in on you and, it, you know, he's, he's, he's making you feel like you're all alone and I'm the only one and boy, I don't know if God's turned his back on me. God is saying, listen, when I say never, I mean never. There's nothing you can run by God that he hasn't heard or that he doesn't know, or that he hasn't already forgiven billions of times. So when he says never, he's the only one with credibility because he's the only one to have experienced all of human history. When he says never, he means never. And the gift of the Spirit is his way of affirming in us that he will never leave us, that he will never forsake us and that that is the promise of your creator god so we need to know that we need to know that and when we accept the reality of that promise when we accept that never means never when we accept that god's people are never alone they never have to be alone then that leads to kind of this this final piece the final the final uh, element that I, I think we need to focus on here based on this reading and it is this that that the holy spirit is is god's god's means of of producing peace in our lives. Jesus says there in John 14, verse 27, peace I leave with you, and then he specifies my peace. This is not generic peace. This is not just run-of-the-mill peace. He's saying, no, I give you my own peace. It's my peace. It's the peace of Christ, and it is directly linked to the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And when he, when he finishes that, you know, he makes this promise then too, and if you take it out of context, you know, it, it sounds kind of bizarre because he says, do not let your hearts be troubled and afraid. Well, it's easy for you to say, right? You're Jesus. <laughs> well, even Jesus, his heart was troubled, right? And even Jesus, there were times when fear seems to be pressing in pretty, pretty close, all right? But we can be faithful to that, to that command. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. We can be faithful because of the presence of the Spirit. You know, troubles... And fears, those are the enemies of the work that the Spirit of God is trying to bring about in my life. Worry and fear, 
That's the enemy of the fruit of the Spirit. You just think about it. Whenever, whenever you fixate on your troubles, all right, we're gonna, Jesus says, do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. Okay, so just work backward from that. When we, when we do that, when we fixate on our troubles, my word for that is worry, okay? We fixate on our troubles and we focus on our fears. You know what we're doing? We are engaged in spiritual warfare, only we're playing for the wrong team. You see, so you have on one side, you have Jesus over here, and he, through the power of his spirit, and the presence of his spirit, he's trying to bring about some spiritual fruit in my life, okay? Galatians 5 says it's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, okay? Those are the things that the Holy Spirit, that Jesus, the Holy Spirit are trying to bring about in my life, okay? But then on the other end of the, of the spectrum, there's the other sideline, there's this, these evil forces, uh, the way Paul puts it in, in Ephesians chapter 6, it's the uh, spiritual forces of darkness and evil in the heavenly realms, okay? And according to Ephesians, the, those forces are working to subvert the gospel of peace. I didn't invent that phrase, that's in there. They were trying to, to tear down the gospel of peace that the Holy Spirit and Jesus are trying to bring about over here in the realm of the kingdom. These forces are, are adamantly opposed to that, and so they will do anything they can to bring us out from this place of peace, to, to kill that spiritual fruit that the Spirit is trying to bear in our lives, and to sow seeds of discord and uh, just the lack of peace in our own lives. That is spiritual warfare, according to the scriptures. That's kind of what is happening at a higher plane than we can even see and understand. But when I fixate on my troubles and I focus on my fears, you know what I'm doing is I'm letting the enemy come into my kitchen. I'm letting them have like run of the garden and, and, and Satan is just running around spraying that pesticide all over the fruit that the Holy Spirit is trying to bear in my life. And I wonder then why I don't have peace. And then sometimes we have the gall to blame God for that. Well, the Lord's just not bringing me any peace in my life. Well, yeah, it's because you're letting Satan camp out in your heart and you're so worried and so troubled and so afraid. And that sounds really easy to say on a stage on a Sunday morning. I know that there are things that legitimately distract us and worry us and concern us. So please don't misunderstand if I'm stomping on your toes. I mean, I'm taking my medicine here too, okay? I'm just trying to say that when, when we fixate on our, on our troubles and focus on our fears, number one, we're disobeying Jesus. As he says, don't do that. But more importantly than that too, or just as importantly, we're we're engaging in spiritual warfare. We're letting the enemy just run amok in our lives and in our hearts. And there's no peace that comes there. So Jesus says that he's, he's come to give us this kind of peace. And let's not let Satan dump that toxic pesticide in our lives anymore. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to, to the believer. According to what Jesus says there in John 16, the Spirit comes in judgment. So for those who are, who are outside of that relationship, that covenant relationship with Jesus, then the Spirit functions in kind of a different way. The Spirit functions as kind of a, a prosecuting attorney. It says there he condemns the, sin because, uh, condemns the world because of sin and, and unrighteousness and it leads to judgment and all those kinds of things. But he says there for the, for the believer, for the one who faiths in Jesus, like we've talked about here for several weeks, for the one who puts his trust or her trust in Christ and in Christ alone, then the Spirit becomes advocate and counselor, and comforter. And all those promises that we read about here are just brought to us because of the, the blessing of having the Spirit in our lives. So this week, our, our dare is to just spend time with the Spirit, to spend time in, in God's Word, and let, let the Spirit of Christ speak to you through 
through a, a, a passage there, maybe, maybe one of those 1,000 commands that you read about in the New Testament, maybe a, a gospel story about Christ, you know, just, just sit there for a while and, and see what happens, see what, what you glean from that, and trust that, that God is trying to give you wise counsel through the, the reading and the, the meditating on his word. I think you'll be, you'll be blessed because of that. You know, it's unfortunate that what Jesus intends as a gift of comfort and counsel has become a source of such controversy today. There's so many different opinions on the Holy Spirit. In fact, you know, for some of us, even to hear that that's the topic of the sermon, maybe you kind of clench up a little bit, you know. I know, I know, because there's so many places where this conversation could go and just become, you know, we could get into a lot of arguments and discussions about it, but that just kind of proves the point that, that the Holy Spirit is intended by Christ as a gift of comfort and counsel to us. The primary work of the Spirit is to bear witness to Jesus. And so that's the problem when, you know, some would want to make the, the, the primary focal point of their theology is the Holy Spirit and what you believe about it. But even the Holy Spirit doesn't want the Holy Spirit to be the primary focus of theology. The Holy Spirit wants Jesus to be front and center. So that's why we close, I want to close by reminding you of what Jesus himself says. Because it seems like that's what the Spirit would want. He says, because I live, you also will live. And we're going to sing a song right now, and it's basically these words that declare the life that we find because Jesus Christ is alive even today. You can respond during this time in a number of different ways. If you need to just quietly and prayerfully respond where you are, please do that. I think that may be the, the best use of these two or three minutes, frankly. But we, we know that there are times when we want to share things of a more public nature. And so you can certainly respond publicly. You'll see some of your shepherds down front here. They're ready to pray with you, talk with you. We can pray off to the side. We can share it with the whole body if we need to do that. Maybe you're more interested in just talking quietly with one of your shepherds. They'll be in the back of the room and in the, the, the balcony as well. So if that's the case, you can go and talk with one of them. And certainly, by all means, today, if you want to, for the first time ever, declare the lordship of Jesus, put Christ on in baptism. You know, it's, it's baby day because we're celebrating those uh, newborn children that God's given us. But what an awesome way to celebrate baby day by watching someone being reborn in Christ. If that's the case, we would just love to encourage you to be here, to, to walk alongside of you in any way that we can. Let's stand and sing our song, Because He Lives. God sent His Son.